0: Do remain standing and turning your Bibles to the book of Nahum, the book of Nahum. This is just right after Micah, a little over halfway through your Bible there. Looking at Nahum chapter 3, we've taken one chapter, a sermon in the evening in Nahum, and they've been hard words because they are about judgment. And this chapter isn't any easier than the previous two chapters. We come again to a very hard word. And so we require our Lord, we require assistance from God to hear this word. So let us pray. Our God, we come to Nahum chapter three. This is your word. This is your inspired, authoritative and errant word. This is wisdom. For us, this is a good warning for us, and we do pray now that however hard it is, we would have ears to hear it, that we would see this as truth, as good for us and for the world. In Christ, name we pray, amen. Nahum chapter 3, hear now the word of God. <clears throat> Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart to sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees." with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no ease in your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. you might remember one of the main lessons, main points that we learned from our study in the book of Jonah. In chapter 3, which incidentally was read, at least in part, during ABF this morning, in chapter 3 we saw that when God sets his saving grace on a nation, there is no stopping him. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, Jonah, Peter, Paul, Jesus' disciples, Mark, Onesimus, All of these are men whose hearts the Lord shot with grace-tipped arrows. A hundred years before Nahum, the Lord spared Nineveh and graced Nineveh nationwide. But now, that is, in the days of Nahum, the situation is very different. Quite opposite to the situation that we found in Jonah chapter 3. Now we see that when God sets his judgment on a nation, there is no stopping him. When God sets His judgment on our nation, there is no stopping Him. As we consider Nineveh and its soon destruction, that is, soon from the point of Nahum, it's past from our perspective. As we consider this soon destruction, we remember that its destruction is a warning to all that do not bend the knee to Christ in humble, repentant submission. Now, in the first seven verses of this chapter, clearly Nineveh refuses to to repent. There is no repentance by Nineveh. The unrepentant state of Nineveh was crystal clear to God. Their actions were bloody, whorish, and contemptible. Look again with me at verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Remember chapter 2, verse 11. The Assyrian lions and lionesses tore their prey to pieces. There was no end to the prey. Blood kept streaming out of their caves, kept pouring forth from their dens. Likewise, Nahum calls Nineveh the city of bloods. That's what it is, literally. Not just bloody city, but the city of bloods. Shedding blood is their name. That's who they are. That's what they've been doing for a hundred years. It's bloodshed. For instance, King Ashurbanipal, Syrian king, had a sculpture made of his and his wife's victory over the Alamites. Depicted near the banqueting table was a fruit tree with the head of the king of Elam dangling from one of the branches. One Assyrian monarch from another conquest once boasted, With their blood I dyed the mountain red like wool. Here they are taking pride in shedding blood. They are bloodthirsty. But thirsty, yes, but also whorish with all of her prostitutionings. Look at verse four. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. So outwardly Nineveh was beautiful and graceful, seductive and charming, even. She was a lady. Literally, she was fair of grace, and she was all too inviting. But truly, like the, like the forbidden woman in the book of Proverbs, she was deadly, she was murderous. Can you imagine a diplomat today calling a nation or a nation's magistrate representative a whore of whores? Can you imagine that? It's unthinkable. And we say, well, that's not polite language. That sounds pretty rude. And Nahum here has no problem speaking this word to the king of Nineveh because the prophets of judgment are not diplomatic. They are faithful to God. They prefer the fear of the Lord to the fear of man. They prefer to please the Lord rather than pleasing man. We call them as we see them, but Nahum calls them as he knows them, and he knows them because he is a prophet from the Lord who is clearly peering into the heart of Nineveh and seeing the actions with precision and saying, this is bloody, this is horish." And behind Nineveh is a team of demons with their witchcraft, sorcery, and magic. They are well-versed in witchcraft. So we had, there's the, the doctrine of demons that is the foundation of all of this devilish work. All of this wickedness, all of this evil, all of this bloodshed. Verse 6 says, I will throw filth at you. This is the Lord speaking. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. So the Lord will throw filth at Nineveh. Why? To show the world on the outside what Nineveh has been on the inside for a hundred years. Shameful, dirty, embarrassing, gross. Remember chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord says to Nineveh, I will make your grave, for you are vile. The Lord is making a grave for Nineveh. Nineveh was known for reveling in her supposed charm, her beauty, her treasures. She made herself attractive to all who looked upon her. Her hair looked clean, but that was only the dry shampoo deceiving the nation's. And if you look closer, her wavy hair was because of all those lice moving about. Yes, ooh, gross. Some of you are listening. Now, if any of us, if if any person treated us this way, we might get on board with Jonah's attitude. With this in view, we can see why Jonah was reluctant for Nineveh to repent. Why, he'd say... Lord, I want to go a different way, because I know how Nineveh is. Remember, Jonah would probably rather trade places with Nahum. He would have preferred to be that prophet of judgment. And the Lord said, you're going to be the prophet actually extending mercy. I'll have a different prophet for that, for judgment. But if any person treated us this way, treated us ourselves or our families or our nation this way, we would surely cry out for justice, wouldn't we? And would we have sympathy for the unsympathetic? Most likely not. But now, a hundred years later, and with no repentance in sight, God refuses to relent. Remember chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord says, Behold, I am against you, and I will burn you up in smoke. When we read that, we might wonder: is this anger just a, a flash in the pan, divine outburst? Is this an empty threat? Is God going to make good on this? Well, he assures the Ninevites in chapter 3, verse 5 again. He says, behold, I am against you. Literally, it's just behold me. So the Lord's saying, look at me. Who do you think you're dealing with? Do you think that you're up against the Israelites? That you're really up against the Babylonians or the Medes, the Persians? No, you are dealing with the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. You are dealing with the Lord who has covenanted with Israel forever. That's who you are up against. And the Ninevites will stumble over all of their dead bodies. You see that in verse 3. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Whoever is left has to zig and zag just slowly and carefully to avoid all of the corpses that are on the ground because of what God will have have done. And there's shame. The Lord says that he will expose Nineveh's shameful harlotry to everyone. There's contempt. He says, I hold you in contempt in verse 6. The smear campaign will be posted all over town. And all of it will be true. You don't have to wonder what's true and what's false. It's all true. All that wickedness that you see posted around town about how wicked Nineveh is, all accurate. Verse 7, And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her. And then Nahum picks up and says, where shall I seek comforters for you? Or the Lord picks it up. Where shall I seek comforters for you? All that potential gone. Wasted is Nineveh. That great city with great potential wasted. No one will be around to grieve for those who are left behind. No grief counselors are coming into this crisis situation to help those process what has happened. There won't be anyone who has a grieving bone in his body for them. They couldn't muster up the sympathy to shed a tear for so oppressive a nation. No one came to Nineveh's funeral because there wasn't one. No one cared enough to have one. And it wouldn't be a funeral. It wouldn't be a celebration of life. It would be a celebration of their death because of how Wicked, how oppressive, how nasty a nation Nineveh was. And you say, wow, that's a hard word. It's no mercy. It is a hard word. The truth is, beloved, any person, any family, Any nation that remains unrepentant will know judgment worse than this. If you thought this was bad, what do you think hell will be like? You don't want to imagine it. I don't want to imagine it. I shudder at the thought. If you thought this was bad, and you are rejoicing in the Lord that he rescued you from this possibility? Surely our hearts should be full of thankfulness to him who has rescued us from much worse than this, from eternal hellfire. The fullness of wrath poured out on us. We've been delivered from that. But for those who don't flee to Jesus Christ, who don't hide in God as their refuge... This pales in comparison. This this fails to describe in the fullness of what awaits them. What is good for the goose is also good for the gander. Likewise, when the goose groans, so ought the gander. And if what families do, families in our nation, if what they do is representative of our nation, then, beloved, we must beware. Our own nation is dead set on shedding innocent blood and being proud of it. Just consider abortion. In the first six months of 2020, 465,000 abortions were recorded across the 50 states. 465,000. It's four years ago, right? A little over three years ago. But since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, how many? Surely the the number is is less. Now that the legality of abortions is determined from state to state, what are the numbers that we're dealing with? Well, in the first six months of 2023, 511,000 abortions were recorded across 36 states. So we have more abortions, but fewer states engaging in that. Our own nation has not died down as a whole, when it comes to abortion. The WHO, the World Health Organization, revealed stats for 2023 that showed abortion to be the fifth highest cause of death in the whole world, surpassing deaths from infectious diseases and cancer, 44.6 million. Surely we are thankful for Helen Rogers and her ministry. Surely the Lord has said to her, well done, good and faithful servant. You cared for the lives of the preborn. You didn't save all of them. But you saved a lot. Praise be the Lord, right? Our nation needs to learn that it needs to stop being a city of bloods, a nation of bloods. And if that were enough, we'd have a lot of blood on our hands. But we know that it is not enough. That's not all. This land that we love is filled with prostitution and whoredom. No longer calling them civil unions, our regressive nation views marriages, air quotes, with people of the same sex or gender as marks of progression. As a sign of of, of new life in the nation, of, of progress. But even that sentence that I just said isn't tolerant enough. Because it assumes that sex and gender are the same. Apparently, I'm not progressive enough to realize that gender is a social construct. And you can change it however you want. That's fine with me. Hope it's fine with you too. Drag Queen Story Hour has become a regular rite of passage for the deviant who relabel child abuse as enlightened education. Pornography is on the rise as always. Only fans, has just grown in popularity, which is both pornographic and prostitution. This is the nation that we live in. This is the nation also that we love. Not that we love those sins, but we love the people. And we want change, don't we? These and many other ways of our nation are simply shameful. They're just flat-out contemptible. But what is telling about our own nation right now is how it differs from Nineveh back then. The Lord said that he would lift up Nineveh's skirts and expose her shame to everyone. But what does our nation say? She says, no need, God. We'll lift up our skirts ourselves. And we're proud of it. We're proud to bear all. Because, oh God, if you exist... It's not shame, it's freedom, it's not contempt, it's love, it's life. It's us doing it our way, us being us, being our true us. But Nahum says, woe to that nation. There is no rest in the relenting of the Lord for all who are restless in their wickedness. God had previously warned the Assyrians in the days of Sennacherib by destroying 185,000 Assyrians at the gate of Jerusalem in a single night. And that was a mere taste of what was to come. The question for them, then, was, will the surrounding nations learn the lesson? Will Nineveh learn the lesson? What are the nations of the world today? What of America now? What does a nation like Nineveh do in the face of this divine hostility? Behold, I am against you. What does a nation do? Well, I'll tell you what a nation should do. It should do what Nineveh did 100 years before. Repent. Nationwide repentance. Humility. Confession of sin. Changing ways. That's what it should do. That's what our nation should do. But that's not what Nineveh does. No, it doubles down because of self-given exaltation. Verse 8, Lord says, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? And verse 9, Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and thou without limit put and the Libyans were her helpers. So, Nineveh says, Look at me. And the Lord says, Yeah, look at you. Are you better than Thebes? Do you really think you're better than Thebes? So, what's going on here with this reference? You know, you might recall from the very first message of Nahum that this mention of Thebes is a way to identify the period in which Nahum was prophesying. That in 663 BC, Nineveh took down Thebes. So that's the starting point. Point that Nahum could have prophesied to Nineveh. The ending point was 612 when Nineveh was taken down, when they were overcome. Thebes is the capital city of Egypt and Thebes seemed impenetrable, unstoppable, and it was until Assyria conquered Thebes, humbled Thebes. Thebes had everything it needed. It had a wall of water in verse 8. It had a constant watery gate that would prevent invaders from coming in. It had surrounding nations. It had supporting nations. It had allies—Egypt, Cush, Put, and Libyans—they would all come to the defense of Thebes if any potential enemy would threaten to take down Thebes. So naturally, geographically and militarily speaking, Thebes appeared impenetrable. Ezekiel speaks of Egyptian or of of this pride here of of Egyptian pride in Ezekiel twenty-nine ten. They said of the Nile River, I made it. That's what Egyptian pride says. I made the Nile River. That was me. I did that. The hubris, the arrogance, the pride. The city of Thebes, again, appeared impenetrable until Assyria conquered it. The Assyrian king, Asarhaddon, had begun the efforts in 680 to 670. And then his son, Ashurbanipal, took over And pursued Thebes with relentless determination. And on his way marching to the south of Egypt, he had enlisted twenty-two kings in his support, including the wicked Manasseh of Judah. After marching thirteen hundred miles on foot from home, King Ashurbanipal took down Thebes. So what's the point that Nahum's making? Now Nineveh, which appears impenetrable, which appears unstoppable, will fall. Nineveh knew how imposing a force Thebes was, knew how hard it was to overcome that strength. But Nineveh did it. Against all odds, Nineveh beat Thebes. But if Thebes, the mightiest of cities, fell, why not Nineveh, the city that bested the mightiest? So Nahum is saying to Nineveh, Take heed lest you fall, or rather, take heed. You will fall. Don't think that you are better than Thebes. You took them down. I'm taking you down. Behold, I am against you. Nineveh's downfall, as we see in verses 11 through 13, will be as easy as pie, or figs instead. Verse 12, all your fortresses are like fig trees, with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. The imagery is clear. This fruit is low-hanging fruit. If it's low-hanging fruit, it's very easy to pick. But it's, it's more than that. It's more than just low-hanging fruit. It is loosely hanging fruit. You bump into the tree, and the fruit just falls. So the name's point is you bump into Nineveh, and it'll go down like a sack of potatoes. Another image that Nahum uses is that of drunkard and Nineveh's troops. He says in verse 11, you also will be drunken, you will go into hiding, you will seek refuge from the enemy. And in verse 13, behold, your troops are women in your midst. And so first, they're like a bunch of drunkards trying to carry, carry out a joint project. They probably can't even put in a light bulb together. Like a bunch of uh, Babylonites in the Tower of Babel, just confused not knowing how to work together because they're they they do not have any self-control and so this drunkard's walking around the tavern he falls over himself and he's conked down on the floor and he's under a table hidden away sweet dreams drunkard sweet dreams but second and perhaps most controversial in our context right now is nahum says that you your troops are a bunch of women now, our modern minds might wonder, is this a good thing? This, this is a good thing, right? We're a progressive nation. We got, we got women. We got women in, in military. That's a good thing, right? Nahum's saying, no, no, it isn't. It's a clear insult. This is definitely not a source of pride as our own nation thinks it is. Because in the Bible, and it should be in our own life, Women are life givers, not life takers. They are home makers, not home takers. And we know, generally speaking, women are not known for the kind of physical strength that surpasses men's strength, generally speaking. You know, a boy may may give mom the pickle jar, but mom will quickly give that over to dad. And he'll take care of that. J.L. tent-pegging Cicero's skull was doubly shameful. One, because he was killed, and two, because he was killed by a woman, the weaker vessel. That's a heavy word. You guys have seen the movie The Sandlot? Hopefully, you know what I'm talking about. I told you, Joseph, even though you hadn't seen it, so you know you what's know coming. So The Sandlot, one of the greatest baseball kids' movies ever created. Sandlot's just a ragtag team, a bunch of baseball players. They don't have any uniforms. They just love to play baseball, Right? And there's one, t- there's one scene. This team is just having a great time. It's playing baseball in this dirt field. And here comes this well-uniformed team on bikes. And obviously, they're the rivals. And of course, there's been some bad blood. And of course, they've had some run-ins with each other, obviously. Well, this team on bikes just comes up and says, let's... let's um, Let's play a game, right? Let's see who really is the better team. Let's do it right now. No, we're not going to do it right now. We're going to do it on a real field. Okay. Well, before they part ways, they trade insults. I'm not going to recite all the insults here. They are insulting. But just several insults are, are hurled each other's way. And no one bats an eye at any of them, until one insult. You play ball like a girl. If you watch the movie, you see people's faces. Did he just say that? That was not a kind thing for them to hear. It was an insult. That does not even compare to what Nahum is saying to Nineveh. But the Lord is saying, can you imagine if we said to Russia, you guys fight like a bunch of girls. How would they handle that? They would probably show us that they do not fight like a bunch of girls. And beloved, I know it's a controversial thing to say. I don't choose texts that force me to say something like this. It's, it is uncomfortable. But I do prefer the fear of the Lord to the fear of man. And, dear ones, if we have a problem with the Lord speaking this way, then we have a problem with the Lord, not with Nahum, not with me. We have a problem with the Word of God. Nahum offers this and other images, five total images, to speak of how easily Assyria will be shaken, will be taken. They are a staggering drunk. They are a panicking fugitive. They are a trembling fig tree. They are weak women. They are a city whose gates have been thrown wide open for the entering, for the taking. The point here, in this sub-point, is that the Lord uses a nation's supposed boasted strength to humble it. So they who drink the cup of wine and boast in their own efforts in acquiring it will soon be drunk with the wrath of God. And this is humiliating for the unrepentant nation. It is intended to be humiliating, to be humbling. But it is also, at the same time, hope-giving for the people of God. Judgment is coming. We can downplay it. We can ignore it. But that doesn't mean it's not coming. The Lord has made it crystal clear to us in countless passages that there will be judgment day. It is certain the woe will not be lifted. The Lord will not say, you know what, after all these centuries, after all these millennia, I'm I'm actually not going to have eternal wrath for those who don't submit to Christ. It's not an option for him. And it shouldn't be because he's the God of justice. So ruin is, eternal ruin is on its way for all who are not in Christ. At the same time, there is encouragement that Peter gives us in 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10, he says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue us when we live in a nation of unclean lips. This is both a warning to the unrepentant and a refuge of comfort to those who flee to Christ, who are resting in Christ. And finally, we see in the end of this chapter what Nahum began with, no mercy. There's no mercy from Nineveh. I'm not going to belabor this point since I've already made it, except to say one more thing. King Ashurbanipal once mocked and boasted over his victim, Date He had an inscription written, and he's boasting, he says, I put him into a kennel with jackals and dogs. I tied him up and made him guard the gate in Nineveh. He was merciless, and he was mocking his conquered. This merciless mockery was what the Assyrians were very well known for. They were not known to be a merciful people. Seneca's de clementia, on mercy, didn't register to them. Of course, it was written after the time, but that, the, the thought of conquering the enemy and showing mercy to the enemy did not factor in Nineveh's mindset. There is then no mercy from God. Because of this inhuman treatment on his fellow man, he, Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, will get no mercy Verse 14, look at the feeble forts, draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. Go ahead, try to fortify your forts, try. But they are as feeble as the warrior women are in the city. The Ninevites are as numerous as locusts, but their mighty fortresses and their gods are consumed with a moment's blast of the devouring locusts. Their forts are feeble. Their leaders are leaving. Verse 17, your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling, settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. With the feeble forts, the leaders leave. They fly away, they scatter. Nahum says, where'd they go? He's mocking them, he's taunting. Where'd they go? Where's all that courage that you guys keep telling us about? You and What army? Literally, what army? I don't see it. Where are your leaders? Where are your defenses? The leaders have left, and these shepherds have slept. Verse 18, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. He doesn't have any more help. You can hear the king of Assyria saying to his wise men, what is this? Could you not stay up with me one night as I poured myself into prayer? The people of Assyria had been scattered on the mountains. All of the Assyrian sheep were scattered, and there weren't any shepherds who went out to find anyone showing themselves to be false shepherds, caring only for themselves and not for those in their, under their care. And there's a final word to the king of Assyria. He bears the brunt of a responsibility, and so he receives the last word from the king of heaven and earth. You Remember that in Jonah's time, it was the king who repented and he had declared a nationwide fast <clears throat> and uh, repentance. It came from top. Here, we don't have that. He is the most responsible. He's the one who's supposed to lead the nation and he led them in wickedness. He led them in bloodshed. He led them in immorality, in contemptible conduct. And so he is going to receive the most severe punishment. The man's wound is a grievous wound. And the servant's girl's groans that we heard about in chapter 2 don't even compare to this man's groans of grief. Indeed, the grief of this king doesn't even compare to the joy of the people of God at his demise. After all, for instance, can you fault the allies as they rejoice over the fall of Hitler? Surely the fall of Hitler was a good thing. An opportunity for celebration, for joy, for shouts of praise. We should rejoice when the evil one is overcome. We do rejoice when the evil one has been overcome by Christ. Jesus has bound the strong men, as we saw last time in Aham chapter two. He plundered the strong man's goods. He dispossessed the strong man of his ill-gotten goods. And he has transferred us into a kingdom of light, of grace, of love, of righteousness, of peace. God is all about grace and mercy. Yes, he is a God of judgment. And when he sets us Sites of judgment on a nation, there is no stopping him. And that's why this final verse, this question here, is very important. Do you remember the questions from Jonah 3, Jonah 4 and Nahum 3? Both these books, Jonah and Nahum, end with a question. No other books of the Bible end with a question. It's just Jonah and Nahum. And they both, providentially, are about the same length. And they both, providentially, are about Nineveh. Surely that's not a coincidence. You might remember the question that God said to Jonah in chapter 4, verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Can't I pity that nation, Jonah? Is it not... Within my divine prerogative to show mercy to this nation that has repented and save 120,000 people and so much cattle? Can't I do that? Doesn't the, the potter have right over the clay? Of course he does. If he wants to make a vessel for wrath, he can. If he wants to make a vessel for mercy, he can. That's what he's pressing. That's what he was pressing Jonah to get on board with. Should not I pity Nineveh? But in Nahum 3.19, now God says to Ashurbanipal, For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Who has not been the object of your ceaseless evil, your wicked conquest? Who has been spared? Who has been shown pity? Who has been shown mercy, O king? No one. And you know what that means for you then? No mercy. The Lord ensures no mercy, no pity for Nineveh. So pity and mercy is the link between these two. Because of unrepentance, there is no more mercy. The good news there is, if we repent, we find mercy. We are given mercy. That's a promise. There is mercy to all who trust in Christ, to all who confess their sins and repent Turn away from their wickedness and turn to Jesus. There will never be anyone who turns away, who repents, and is found without mercy. Where Jesus says, Sorry, no more mercy. I don't have any more for you. You just missed it. None of that. Everyone who comes to Christ finds mercy everyone who comes to Christ truly experiences saving grace. But you don't get any mercy. You don't get any grace. You don't get any salvation if you remain unrepentant in your sin and you reject Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the message in Nahum. And so blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And dear ones, it is too late for ancient Nineveh. God refused to be merciful to them. They had their call to repent. They had a century to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And they are now Nineveh no more. Remember Psalm 2, 8 through 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest, re- lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. It is too late Nineveh, who perished in the way, quickly kindled by the Lord's fiery wrath. But it is not too late for anyone, even now alive, for all persons, families, peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, for those of your friends and families that do not yet know the Lord, there is still hope. And let us thank God for his kindness, for his grace, for his mercy, all of which abound in Christ Jesus. We know what it is to be saved from the wrath of God, by the Son of God. Praise be to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let's pray for our families and friends whose lives have up to this point mocked God. Let us pray, O oh God, have mercy on them. Give them repentance. Show them their sin. Show them the Savior. And let us likewise pray for our nation. You know our nation needs it. Let us pray, God, bless this nation with repentance. Be merciful to us in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious and just God, we are thankful for your word, even a hard word like we have heard here from Nahum chapter 3, all of Nahum really. We are assured of the promise of salvation for those who flee to Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would spare Our friends and families, those who do not know you, you will spare them that you would change their hearts that they might know Jesus Christ. We pray also, Lord, for our nation, for our leaders, that you would convert their hearts, that they would be truly wise according to your law, that they would make wise decisions for all of us living in this nation that we love. In Christ we pray, amen.